Hello world, welcome to Hopecast. This is our podcast on spirituality, sexuality, wellness and queerness. This is Paul in London. And this is Yasser in Lisbon. And you were just in London and we got to see each other and hang out and sit in a park. It was so lovely. Now you're back yes. in Lisbon. It was really wonderful. How was your trip to London? Obviously seeing me was, you know, amazing. Well, it was a lovely trip. I came to London after seven months, so uh, it had been a while. So it was really good to catch up with family and friends and see everyone in person and be out taking walks and things, you know, really lovely. I really enjoyed it. What was it like seeing London again after that length of time? Did you notice anything different? Well, I thought it'd be a bit busier with tourists and it really didn't feel that busy as it gets. And then you know, Oxford Street, the shops and things, they just seem to be in a bit of a slump. It just seems that world has changed. Mm. Maybe it's Brexit and things not being there and prices, but it just doesn't have that, you know, mm. in a say choir that used to be there, that sort of, um, sort of very lively ambience. It just is gone. So I think that's, that's gone with the pandemic, with Brexit, other stuff going on. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I know that for me, I don't, really think of shopping as a hobby anymore I think there would have been a time and maybe when we didn't live in London like if if Dan and I had nothing to do we'd be like oh should we go to the shops because it was just a way of filling time but I would certainly avoid it at all costs now and so I haven't really seen what that looks like but I know that experiences feel really busy I wonder if people are going to things to do rather than to spend money and buy stuff <clears throat> yes, and not to give the impression that, you know, that's my favourite thing to do in London, but it is close to where I head down on the bus, not far from where I live. Mm. And occasionally, you know, I'll pop in somewhere and pick up some things I need, some essentials. Mm. So it's just relative to how it used to be, because, you know, Oxford Street is like the big shopping, you know, you know it's mm. around the world to shop. I mean, Primark is like a little mini UN. <laughs> it's usually shoulder to shoulder, and it's just packed. And I never loved yeah. it, so I've just noticed it seemed way more quiet, way more, the oomph is gone, and that just mm. be a way maybe a pulse, a reading on what's happening more broadly, or people seeking other experiences, mm. um, or just some, a little bit of economic decline beginning to happen. Yeah, you know? yeah, there's definitely less sparkle around there. Yeah, less sparkle is a good one. But, uh, you know, the sparkle was meeting you and other friends and going in the park. And, you know, that the spark of nature is always there. Mm. No yeah, that. it was really lovely to do that. Hang around, hang around in the park. Um, I was, and the thing that we didn't get to do because uh, of time just running out was going to the Queer Britain Museum because I know that we were thinking about doing yeah. that together. But I did, in terms of thinking about what was making me feel hopeful, I did manage to drop in last weekend and... I well what was I thinking actually I wasn't really thinking anything I was feeling something um I'd been doing just the day before a panel a photography panel my friend Catherine who's an amazing photographer uh opened an online exhibition which called it felt photo and anyone could enter and then there was a panel of I think five of us and I don't think any of us, maybe one or two, had um, any like professional photographic experience. And so to be on the panel, the intention was that we would choose the photos that made us feel something. 
rather than do we like it or even is it good or any of that i i chose this photo which i just even thinking about it now makes me feel a bit i feel my heart go because it was just like this blank landscape with a bit of a gray sky <laughs> like normally i would run past it in a museum or a gallery but there was just something about seeing it on screen that made me feel something and I was saying to Catherine, like the, she's done a recording of the, the panel conversation. I was saying, I think it's making me look at art differently. Because normally I would go for, you know, I, I'd go into like Tate Modern, I'd go straight for the one that was like big, colourful, showy, you know, anything a bit weird. And so when I was going around Queer Britain, which is actually still quite small, I don't think it's officially kind of opening until the summer. There's only two or three small rooms. And I think if I had gone in with a kind of my old traditional head on, I would have gone in and gone, hmm, is that it? Oh, look at these photos. They're all quite ordinary. But there was one photo of these two guys who were just mucking about in a field, like, and looking, you know, kind of having fun and... I don't know if they even knew that their photo was being taken. They were kind of just laughing. And it had the biggest impact on me. I thought at one point I was just going to lose it in the gallery and cry. Because it made me think about how, as queer people, we often just have maybe one photo in an exhibition or one piece or, or maybe a month of stuff for Pride Month. And that kind of really ordinary photo that you just wouldn't, pay more than two minutes attention of it would never make it into a space like that because it's not gay enough you know it's not queer enough it's not mm. massive enough and I just thought yeah this is what it's like you know there were things that were really extraordinary and really big and showy and amazing and beautiful and then there were these tiny little portraits of people that you would never normally see anywhere else and it just made me so hopeful that there's now a space for that for us to have those moments where, yes, you can be extravagant and you know made up and in costume, or you can just be mucking about with your friend in a field. It was really beautiful, really made me yeah. hopeful. Mm. Sounds lovely. It sounds like just a slice of this moment mm. sort of illuminated these two people's lives. Yeah. Truly. And I, I, I tweeted about it and... Um, Queer Britain replied with, I think, the best tweet ever. They said, yeah, it's nice to have more than four corners, isn't it? And it just it made me think, yeah, that's always how it is. You know, in a, a queer exhibition, it's like you get one room or one space. It just felt really lovely. Yeah. How about for you? What's been making you feel hopeful lately? Well, just to riff off what you said, I, you know, art definitely makes me hopeful. So I went to uh, the Tate Britain, which I love. Mm. England and pop, you know, poked around, and they had a, a series of photographs, uh, diasporic and people, people of different identities in Britain. And speaking of queerness, there was one by Sneel Gupta, you know, who's well known and um, has been documenting gay life in Britain for a very long time. Some of his lover outside. Okay. Uh, well, I've never heard of him. Sunil Gupta, yeah, he's... Yeah, have I got to give back my gay membership card for admitting that? Um, maybe, but I think it's... <laughs> how, you know, the non-white voices are often not mainstream, but he's been in Britain mm. for a very long time. 
exhibits, books, things in India. And I can send you some links. Wow. There's a picture of him with his, what he, he says his lover. And it's mm-hmm. then outside the cinema where my beautiful Laundrette was showing. And it's just this moment. Oh, wow. Captured together. And I know his work um, because, and he's written essays and things on being mm-hmm. here working for, for decades. And so that, that photograph is quite well known. But there were a lot of, it was nice to see that queer photo among all the others um, that spoke to different forms of identity and were mm. painting and things. So that would give me hope, you know, just unexpected stuff. Mm. I popped into this exhibit there, since you might have, by a British artist called Isabel, never heard of her, Ross, Ross Thorne. Ross Thorne. Mm-hmm. And she was with Giacometti for decades, and they were lovers and partners and friends, and then they broke up and and um, were still friends. Mm-hmm. She's the figure in many of his sculptures. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she introduced him to Picasso and Francis Bacon and all these artists that he didn't know. Like, she was the one. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like he stole her ideas. It was nothing. They just had this beautiful relationship where no one was being taken advantage of, which is sort of rare in the mm. art world. Usually, you know, the men are taking advantage of women. They're diminished. And her art is lovely. I mean, I love Giacometti, but her, she had um, drawings of nudes that were wonderful. And she had some paint, self-portraits and others. And they're just almost a hint of a figure or a face, barely a stroke, mm. almost ghostly, but with thick paint. Really quite marvelous stuff. And then a few of animals in the zoo. And they were just so touching, you know, and I'm like, so what gives me hope is there's just these artists to be discovered that you know, we all know Giacometti, but we don't know much about her. And she was mm. on him and vice versa. And her art is pretty amazing in its own right. So it gives me hope mm. for art and always something new to be seen, right? Mm. I, yeah, I had a similar experience when I went to the National Gallery. I had a, a couple of hours to kill before I was meeting up with a friend and so I just had to wander around and actually that that place isn't really my kind of thing either it's I find it quite boring and so I decided to kind of try and use my eye and look for any signs of queerness anything that might give a hint of queerness in these really old you know 1400 1500s paintings and there's a lot of naked men doing a lot of things with other naked men <laughs> and or just or you I'd see particularly lots of paintings of the crucifixion or you know very religious imagery and then there'd just be a bloke in the background with really tight Y fronts on I mean not Y fronts but you know like tight white pants showing his bum off and and I thought yeah that's deliberate there's someone somewhere has painted this picture and then thought you know what's missing is a nice ass or in the background of a scene, there'd just be a couple of men with a bit of a toga having a cuddle, and that was deliberate. <laughs> it's not like it was an accident. It's not, you know, it's not like a photo where you suddenly go, "Oh no, what were they doing in the background?" It's like someone painted these figures, and so I ended up going around and just going, "Yeah, where can I see all these moments of what I'm assuming might be queerness? Maybe not. Maybe they're just friends. Maybe they're brothers. They were very comfortable together." but just to look for stuff that I wouldn't normally see. And I thought, yeah, we've been there. We've been around all that time. We're not just an invention of the 1950s. You know, for hundreds of years, we've been showing up in those spaces in our <laughs> tight white pants. Or none, e- no pants either, right? But 
if you go back to the all those ancient Greek vases and things. And I was, it's funny, I was looking mm. at a book in the museum shop, and I think it was on queerness and art um, all, mm -hmm. all the way back thousands of years to now, you know, whatever they could find. And um, there was just all these representations, but they don't show up, they're not put on display, they're hidden, they're mm. shut away. And so we're given a very fragmented view of of what art was or what people's lives were like. In fact, there was a pitch in the book, you know, you know, the Greeks are famous, of course, for, um, you know, men and boys and things, which back then was accepted. And this rite of passage, it wasn't considered, you know, uh, um, strange or mm. of abuse as it might be today with older men. And on the vase on one side was a man, an older man having sex with a younger boy and he was penetrating him. It was there to be seen. There was no issue. There was, <laughs> it was mm. clear as night, clear as day. Mm. Oh, yeah, know. they weren't just friends. <laughs> yeah, they were literally, you know, having sex. Or maybe they were just friends with benefits. Yeah, something, or oh, whatever, right? It was the older man. On the other side of the vase, it's reversed. It's the older man, a different older man, now being the bottom and the younger chap being the top. And again, there was no ambiguity around it. Mm. And then also in the book illustrations, you know, the very the Japanese prints which show um, beautifully done, but you know, beautiful kimonos, but then the kimonos are sort of displayed apart and sexual organs are shown and the sex happening. There was one with two women and one of the women had a strap on. Mm. With the other woman. I mean, we're talking of, you know, 17th century. Yeah. So all that stuff is hidden away. You know, I think the British, especially with colonialism, were really good at wiping out any trace, first of all, of sexuality in general, mm -hmm. and then certainly any trace of homosexuality or lesbian sex, just mm. these were British, you know? Um, and it's a great disservice, isn't it? And I hadn't really thought about it, even like until this moment now of, you know, going around hunting for those images actually even yeah that there are probably images where it's much more explicit but someone's curating that and whenever and like yeah i guess i hadn't thought about it whenever you go into a gallery that's very heavily curated someone's made a choice and so there may be art that features very uh not necessarily sexually explicit but very explicitly queer people and it just wouldn't get shown because someone goes no we're not having that so yeah, I didn't even, I, I guess, I, I don't know how art works. I just thought, oh yeah, of course, if it was there, they'd put it on show. But no, someone's making an editorial decision yeah, about what people can see. Yeah, it's locked away in the vaults. And then when they do a queer exhibit, it all gets brought out and mm. extralized in this queer or gay way. And then you have a special exhibit on it. Mm. It's almost like, okay, that's, we're gonna keep it over here. And then all the regular art we usually show is there. Mm. And we're going to treat it as something different or special when, in fact, why can't it just be normalized and in with everything mm. else? You know, there's so many naked women um, on the yeah. historic and art. It's just what it is. And then, you know, where are all the nude men? And the nudes that were painted, they were painted too. But mm. it's patriarchy and that's very mm. dominant in the art world and traditionally has been, you know, it's been the world of uh, male artists, predominantly white male artists. And, and, mm -hmm right through modern times. And uh, the women have had to fight for their space in it. Mm. Um, and these are just, you know, female 
artists like George O'Keefe or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Lane de Kooning, who's an amazing portrait artist in her own right. And then you, you know, and then now this Isabel Rothstein, we all know Giacometti, we know nothing about her. And mm-hmm. so that these marginalized voices, and then what do you imagine happens to the queer voices? That that's mm-hmm. how, you know, presumably heterosexual white women, you know, what happens to the queer fellows or the lesbians or the bi's or the trans. And, mm-hmm. and they're there, right? Well, they're in the shadows of the art, but we're also there as subjects. And we're always also there portrayed and then we've been hidden away. So it is now I'm getting actually quite angry about it. It seems like a huge outrage and disservice to everyone because then we're just represented. Yeah. We need a queer museum to see that. Mm. And in other forms of art, you know, it was the uh, BAFTA Awards the other day in the UK, the kind of our equivalent of the Golden Globes, I guess. And It's a Sin won nothing absolutely nothing even though it had been talked about and it was celebrated it was seen as one of the most successful things that's been on channel four in decades nothing and it's not to say that whoever did win was more or less deserving but there's just something about actually when there's something that's you know decidedly queer that enters the mainstream consciousness and then just gets nothing i think what's that about well i don't know what that series is, and maybe others listen. Can you just, because we don't get Channel 4, sadly, in most places. Can you a quick... We must find a way to let you see it. <laughs> so yeah. it's actually just come on Netflix as well. Okay, um, so it was written by Russell T. Davies, who wrote Queer as Folk and Doctor oh. Who and other things like that. And it's set in the 1980s. And it's the story of AIDS, basically. Um, initially, he, he wanted to call it Boys. And I don't know what happened, but he they changed it to It's a Sin, kind of referencing like the Pet Shop Boys song. But it was, I, I think in, originally he was writing it about the fact that so many young men, so many boys died from AIDS in the 80s. And it really is the story of like people discovering it and going, what is this thing? What's happening to us? Mm-hmm. It's beautifully done. It's so well written. It's powerful. It's really emotional. And... And it, it, I think it became a conversation piece like in the mainstream media as well about how great it was. There was also a, a kind of a side thing that happened with um, uh, T-shirts were being sold with the catchphrase on it and they raised, I think it was about half a million pounds for the Terence Higgins Trust. Wow. And all of this stuff going on and then it comes up against others and it's like, nah, we're not going to reward that. But yeah, we'll find a way of getting you to see it because it's so amazing. Yeah. We need to storm into some galleries. Right. <laughs> right now. But yeah, there is, it's, um, yeah. It may, I guess I don't, I don't give myself space or maybe allow myself to be angry about it. And I think that's not okay. Because being in that space and feeling such powerful emotion about it, it's like, yeah, that that's how it should be. We should see ourselves represented. When you publish your art, you put stuff on Instagram and it's always really beautiful. Like, would you, would you ever consider um, submitting it for something? 
Probably, I'm, do, I'm putting some, you know, I'm doing some more work and it's getting to the point where I feel I've got enough to have a small exhibit, you know, stuff that mm. standards for. Okay, yeah, this is good stuff. But you know, Paul, I'm quite boring in that regard. Um, there are gay artists out there, but I do still lifes of fruits and things. Um, that's what I love to do, very traditional. And then I do portraits of people, you know, through this, I just put one up today of this artist Raul um, from Cuba. Mm. And he sat and he was just lovely to, to do that. And, you know, I do my male nudes because I go to a live model session here and they have both female mm -hmm. and male. And I, they have more female than male because that's just the, following a tradition of doing mm -hmm. it. I often say, well, let me know when the next male nude is because, you know, I, get, I don't want to keep drawing female nudes. And I say mm -hmm. that with what's behind it is there is a lot of female nudes out in the world. Mm -hmm. The art world is thousands of them. And many are done with reverence and respect and a lot are not. Or in the old days, it was objectification and it was a way to look mm -hmm. at the bodies of, you know, nymphs and things and classical as a way to look at the female body, but legitimize it, right? Mm -hmm. Modern age, there's less, but then, you know, through Orientalism, you know, females, um, of the East were, were made exotic. And, you know, there's always been, mm. it's, I think now as artists, as men, as anything, we just really have to look, what is this piece of art saying? What is it doing? Are we just treating this female nudes as bodies, as objects, mm. as whatever it may be, because that's so embedded in our culture and the patriarchy. I remember mm. I was at the National Gallery in Washington, DC, a few years ago and they had these artists talk and they they were quite well attended they brought in these famous artists and there was one artist whose her work was wonderful i think it was very abstract and there was something about came up about painting or drawing of female nudes mm -hmm. um, and she said there's enough female nudes out there i don't want to put any more women's bodies out there in the art world and it mm. really struck me because i said that's what we as men privileged men mm. have just done. I mean, this is the history yeah. of it. And so after that, I just started really reconsidering. And so when I, you know, I have a lot of my Instagram, but I only started putting up portraits of women that sort of felt to me, I was seeing something in them that was about them as women, not as naked women. Mm. Yeah. And now um, I will, I often end up with the models facing away where I sit and I get the back and I love mm. that. So I'll often do something where you can't see breasts or other body parts because then mm. that's where the sexualization comes in. I don't know where this conversation is going other than, oh, that's why we need more male nudes because mm. it's, first of all, it's unfair that we're just looking only at female bodies, we look at men's bodies too. And I want to draw more of those. I feel a bit more comfortable putting those out in the world because mm -hmm. one is as a man myself, second, you know, we are a top dog in this world. Um, we're not oppressed, broadly speaking, the way women are. And so mm -hmm. have some privilege in putting those images out without them doing as much damage. Um, but yet and I think there's also some, there's still a bit of mystery. And, and I wonder if the mystery is about covering up vulnerability because women are so objectified and, you know, it's only three years ago in this country that they stopped 
putting women on page three of the newspaper. Page three, girls, God. I remember. I know. Horrifying. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like 40 years that that happened where you could just pick up a paper, open it up, and there's, and again, it was always kind of a bit creepy, like here's 18-year-old Samantha, you know, they're like really borderline. Yeah, and very like, you know, her favourite thing is sitting on daddy's knee. Oh, really vile. And so I think there's been this culture of that being okay. And then <laughs> I think, was it the sun? Some One paper used to try and balance it with the page seven fellow, which was like once a month. Why but it would that? always be, <laughs> oh, awful. It would always be like this, the, like an objectified man in a position of power. So, you know, it would be like the businessman with his shirt off or something like that. Whereas, you know, the, the women on page three were like, here, here's someone dressed as a baby. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there's something, yeah, exactly. There's something about the, the depiction of men and men's bodies, which is about power. Whereas male nudes, they're, you know, sometimes, most of the time, not very powerful. Unless it's, you know. Jesse Williams on Broadway, which you're right. There's a vulnerability, right? Because then, in their nakedness, there's 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 a requirement to be somewhat more vulnerable. Um, where women women and art are just expected to be naked and painted. All mm. and when you look at the works of you know Degas, whom I adore as an artist, um, awful man, misogynist to the core. Mm. Um, thought women were no better than animals and should be treated mm-hmm. as And many of his paintings, all those little ballet dancers and things that people love, mm-hmm. um, if you look at many of his drawings, they are always in contorted positions. They're nursing ankles, they're, they're being bent backwards, they're being manipulated. Ballet does have that, but he accentuates mm-hmm. that. His nudes, you know, the hair's being combed by someone else, but it's being yanked. In all, mm. most of his work, there are elements of abuse and women being contorted into these very physically demonic positions. And he got some sort of perverse pleasure out of that. Wow. And he has these key, you know, a lot of them, the nudes and later on, well, these big voluptuous nudes, these were women, quote unquote, of ill repute or these mm-hmm. people who couldn't get work and that's what they had to do. And he would often have, they were often voyeuristic, they're getting to baths, they're getting out of baths, it looks like they've done through a keyhole. There's no wow. evidence that he did anything with them. Mm. His writings showed he definitely saw women as beasts of burden. And he did a whole set of drawings, private drawings, that were apparently quite shocking. No one knows. Mm-hmm. But when he died, his brother burnt all of them. And there was wow. no record of what was in those paintings. So, you know, who's to know what his sexual proclivities were, maybe... Mm. thing going but apparently there were he had the side that we never knew but those were all destroyed by his brother because they couldn't be seen by anyone and what we have are these paintings that people love mm. and the works of art they are amazing and in fact i think last time in london i saw one collection from somewhere in scotland of his pastels just amazing but you have to you can appreciate them for what they are but you also have to look to see that under his mm. name not there was there was definitely violence and it comes and what's your what's your take on that that kind of thing of separate the art from the artist 
I find that massively difficult to do. Yes, because we had all those anti-Semitic composers as well, right? It's really tough, Paul. Um, and I think it's not about separating. It is about actually seeing that these are human beings. They are complex. They harbor many sides like most of us. They have shadow sides. You know, I mean, all of us have probably had racist thoughts at some time. I, I certainly have. I'm not going to mm -hmm. deny it. And we absorb that, right? Then you stop and correct mm -hmm. it. You're a bad person. But it's really beginning to look and see that these are complex people. They're not simple. And look at Paul Gauguin, all his Tahitian native girls, incredibly problematic, what he was doing with them. You know, all sorts of objectification and island, you know, white man and the islands of Tahiti and just there's a lot written up. But now a lot of artists are writing about it. A lot of women artists are writing about Big Up and how, and are giving commentary. And, uh, and that's the kind of exposition you need to see. So in those exhibits around, mm. increasingly now you will see alternative narratives that begin to speak to what is happening. So people mm. realize that there is, these aren't just pretty pictures. And so I think mm. that's what's important is to bring in queer voices, women's voices, black voices to write commentary mm. rather yeah. than sanitized with the patriarchal white version of what it's been. And that way we begin to see people and artists in their complexity. Um, mm. You don't have to like them. He probably, you know, he wasn't a good, nice man. And I think letting people know that, then you can begin to see his art and say, okay, I can put it in that context. Mm. None of that is made okay, but at least we're being, at least we're reconciling the truth of mm. the art with what we're seeing, right? Otherwise it's just not seen, it's not spoken. And, so and then you become part of the narrative. It's not just, you know, the you become part of the story. You're not just objectified. Although I say that, I'll never give a single penny to J.K. Rowling again. Um, you know, even though having read all the Harry Potter books and seen all the films and thought, oh, this is so brilliant. I just can't. There's just something. I think maybe it's just because she's still alive and still digging herself into that fucking hole that she just refuses to get out of. Around the class, yeah, and just that, you know, you can, if she'd, if she'd said something once and then went, oh, actually, that was misconstrued, but she kind of then tried to get out of it, and then she said it again, and then she does this whole kind of like, are you thinking what I'm thinking, wink, and it's just vile, and so there's something about, I, actually, in that case, I can't separate the art from the artist, because I just think, no, it's not okay. And and I, I don't want to condone that. I don't want to support it. I don't want to give money to it. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something about if an artist is dead and they can't speak for themselves, is there something there that you can kind of take yourself a bit more removed from it rather than someone who continues to make things worse? I agree. I think there's, when they're dead and long gone, or they painted 100, 200 years ago and lived in a very different time and context, it doesn't excuse stuff, mm. but you see it in the worldview of what happened then and how people, mm. how culture and society was, you know? And so it's not excusing it, but they're not here to defend themselves and they're of a time removed. But like in this case with J.K. Rowling, she's of our generation, she's in our time. She mm. has a voice, but we have a voice to say, no, no, this isn't okay. Mm. And you know, there need to be consequences. Hmm. And here are the consequences. I'm not going to read your books. I'm not going to give you a penny. I'm not going to. It's like Woody Allen. 
Mm. Um, I've stopped watching. I've stopped. I basically never watched a Woody Allen movie after that last one. Yeah. Lawsuits, and uh, I know others who won't either. And you know, he's a good filmmaker, but some of his earlier films are just so creepy. My God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And younger women and him being all lechy and pawing at them. It's just mm. gross. I'm not surprised that mm. life perhaps imitated the art, but. I think the last one I saw was the midnight one in Paris or something. Mm. The name, and I just refuse to see anymore because yeah, I don't believe that his daughter's lying. I think she's telling the truth. So mm. we can we have agency now to to yeah to correct and to speak out, to write, to protest, to do things to to get people agitated. Um, and, and to create, you know, how maybe there's something about creating queer art that imitates queer life so that there's a sense of showing all the different sides to ourselves and all the different things that we get up to and the things that we believe and that we create and that we imagine and giving them a place you know maybe one day hope cast will be in the museum of queer britain as a example of queer art um, or and a that's real record yeah yeah, I, I mean, I was picking ourselves up there massively, you know, <laughs> an example of queer art, but just something, you know, as a creative space where people's voices get captured and heard and amplified. Um, you know, I think that there's there's space for everyone. It's just we've been given so little space in the past that we get used to just going, oh, yeah, we'll just have that corner over there. Thanks very much. Just for a few weeks. No, not good enough. And Paul, I might say one more thing since we're on this art topic and queer art and, you know, here I am painting fruits and things. Um, it's, you know, as artists, we create what we like or what we want to create or what we enjoy. And then the question is, what's the responsibility? Um, am I, you know, is there something queer about my still lives? I have no idea. Or does it really matter in that? Or when I do my male drawings, perhaps there is something of a sensibility that can be picked up. So there's a lot to explore and we can't do all that today. And it's, you know, but what I would say, what, what I, the point I was gonna make was this, is that there are many queer artists out there, contemporary and they're on Instagram painting. And I'll be honest, I get tired of queer art being defined as men being painted in jock straps all the time. <laughs> that's what I get um, yeah. from a lot of, oh, queer art, queer art, that's what it is. I'm like, you know, that's fine but that's a little bit of a stereotyped life. The men are mm. always muscly. And I wanna see what you were seeing in the museum, just two guys mucking mm. around, nothing particularly sexual. As you shared that yeah. image on Instagram, I think. Yeah. There's nothing particularly sexual about it. I think they were, you know, he had his legs yeah. walking him along. I can't remember that game we played as kids. Yeah. It was just- I think he was wheelbarrowing him, but actually that yeah. probably is, if, if you, put that into Urban Dictionary, it'll come up with something sexual, I'm sure. Sure, but it, there was just some innocence to that. And it, so queerness doesn't always mean um, being sexual or mm. being painted or depicted in acts of sex or mm. necessarily having a body of death with six pack abs. Where did that come from? And so mm. look for queer artists who begin to, you know, not go straight for that. They're beginning to see that, you know, you know, the audience of gay men and queer men is just a little bit more sophisticated and a little more open to different depictions now. Mm. And, you know, as Anders said once on one of our podcasts, if I eat ice cream, I'm 
I'm eating gay ice cream gaily. You know, there's something about if you're painting fruit, you're a queer artist painting queer fruit queerly. You know, we can't take ourselves out of that. And just because it's not fruit in the shape of a penis, it's like it doesn't mean it's not queer art because it's been created by a queer artist. And there will always be bits of yourself in that. There will always be something about how you see the world through your unique expression. And it's something that Andrew was talking about when he was on our guest cast last week about being described as a queer playwright and how he's really trying to come to terms with that rather than just saying, I'm a playwright. And yeah, there's all this stuff about identity and how it shows up. But for me, I can't get enough of queer artists. I can't get enough of queer playwrights and queer musicians and or, you know, everyone because there's just... Not that there's never been enough of us. There's never been enough of us visible and accessible and successful. So, yeah, I'll come to your show as long as it's about queer art. <laughs> queer fruit, that would be a good title. There you go. Queering fruit. <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, and there's our title for the episode. <laughs> Oh, it's been lovely to have this time with you, yeah, talking about was... art randomly. Well, I think we just scraped the surface and painted a very broad stroke mm. any of those subjects and, you know, we touched upon could be in depth. But I, yeah, it was lovely. And I think um, that's what I love about these, these recordings is we just never know where they're quite going to go and all the mm. intersections that come up for us, right? Because in a way, you're an artist um, as well, Paul with what you put up and what you share and your photographs and your words and your sometimes fun little things. There's, there's art in there. Mm, Lovely. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's quite, uh, yeah. It's thoughtful and it's engaging and it's an artistic response often to the world. It doesn't mean you're painting, mm. but art, you know, moves in many different yeah. ways, right? Oh, I appreciate that. Because I see you as a proper artist, whereas I'm just like, you know, a bloke with a phone. <laughs> That'll be the name of your Instagram, a bloke with a phone. <laughs> Putting that on my LinkedIn profile. There you go. Thank you, yes, sir. So where can people find your art if they want to oh. have a look at it for themselves? Oh, it's so good. Yes, it's on Instagram. So if they search for Yasser Islam art, Y-A-S-S-I-R, mm -hmm. I-S-L-A-M as in Mary, as a nation of Islam and an art. There's only me, right, with that name. So it'll pop up in Instagram. Mm. I'll put the link in the notes as well. Fun, thanks. Yeah. And we'll share it on our Hopecast, our Hopecast Instagram, which is awful because I just never remember to do anything with it. But, you know, whatever. We're a podcast. We're not a multimedia corporation. At least not yet. <laughs> At least not yet. Yeah. One day, the world. Oh, the world is not enough. The world is not enough, yeah. And for now, we're a podcast, and that's enough. Thank you so much for listening. We love and appreciate every single person who listens. Uh, we think you are amazing. If you think we're amazing, you can leave us a rating on your favourite podcast app. Five stars only, please. Anything less is homophobic. You can follow us on our socials, <laughs> our terrible socials, at Hopecast Podcast. If anyone likes doing social media stuff, slide into our DMs. It might take me a few weeks to notice, but that would be nice. And we'll see you again on the next Hopecast. Thanks for listening.